You are now listening to Films for the Void. Welcome to Films for the Void, episode number 73. I am your host, Landon DeFever, and joining me as always is the man aching to being a real doll. They can't all be winners. The I promise to do better with the pun next episode, Eric Spitz. Eric, how have you been doing lately? <laughs> I've been doing great. And yeah, the, the comedic timing for that, I, I give you credit for that. You, uh, you hey, really look, swung for the fences. <laughs> hey, look, all I want to do is put in as much effort as the directors of both of these movies that we're going to talk about today. And honestly, I think I nailed it. I can't I, I don't want to toot my own horn here, but I don't know. I, I think I, I think I think I'm OK. I don't think anyone's going to be too upset that I didn't get too creative on this one. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what you're shooting for. Yeah, I think you nailed it. <laughs> All right. Well, if we haven't sucked you in with that enthusiasm, that, of course, was a reference to Michael Gottlieb's 1987 film Mannequin, which we'll be having a full spoiler discussion on later in the episode. But before we begin, did you know that we have a Patreon? For just $3 a month, you can access all sorts of extra goodies such as early episodes, good conversation, and even the chance to pick an upcoming main topic movie. If any of that interests you, head on over to patreon.com slash films underscore void and sign up today. Now that that's out of the way, Eric, what do you say we get into this episode's anniversary pick? I mean, if we have to. <laughs> if we have to is the best way to put it. So for this episode, we're talking about Mark Tarlov's 1999 film, Simply Irresistible, which is anything but in honor of its 25th anniversary. And the plot of the movie is after her mother's death, mediocre chef Amanda Shelton is having trouble attracting customers to her family's restaurant. While shopping for ingredients, she is given a magical crab by mysterious Gene O'Reilly. Afterward, Amanda's dishes suddenly become excellent, inducing strong emotional reactions in everyone who eats them. Tom Bartlett, who is preparing to open his own eatery, tries her cooking and falls in love. So I asked Eric if he'd ever heard of this movie, as I'd remember hearing as I remembered hearing about the premise on a podcast a few years ago, and genuinely not believing it after I heard that description. I was like, how the hell do you make this work? And frankly, you, you just don't. So we decided to do a little impromptu double feature with a theme of romantic comedies with stupid premises. And this was one of the dumber ones that we could find. So if you're not familiar with this movie, it's completely understandable. Simply Irresistible made a paltry $4.4 million off a $6 million budget, received largely negative reviews, currently holding a 16% on the tomato meter, However, it did charm Roger Ebert, uh, Chicago of, I'm sorry, film critic of the Chicago Sun-Times. Um, but after that, it didn't really make much of an impact. There's really no cult following. There was no sort of revival of this film for its stupidity. It just sort of came and went and you forgot about it. So why not give it a shot to see if there was something that we were missing? So, Eric, what did you think of Simply Irresistible? <laughs> <laughs> I had a very similar thought you did when I first heard about the plot. I was like, there's no way that this exists. This is just way nope. too ridiculous. <laughs> but I'm, I was like, but you know what? I'm intrigued because I want to see how they make this work. And yeah, I, you're exactly right. They just, it just doesn't work. And um, I was hoping it would be one of those instances of it's so bad, it's good. But yeah, unfortunately, that's not the case. I mean, instead, we have a film that tries to take itself too seriously with a wacky concept. And it's just a, recipe for disaster <laughs> oh man recipe for disaster is such a good like gene shallot line of describing this <laughs> holy shit i was again i was really hoping this would be like a diamond in the rough or so bad it's good or something because there have been movies where there are bad movies that like you can sort of get something else out of the fact you can watch it as a comedy you can sort of laugh at the the choices and the cluelessness and i thought the plot or at least the plot description was going to be something that would transform itself into but I just was hoping this movie would be worse it's sort of a lot of it is just sort of lame and forgettable it, it like I said it comes and goes just as quickly as it arrives there really is no impact no one is really trying here and this movie has good actors in it that I like like I love mm -hmm. Sarah Michelle Gellar and the right thing 
I've liked Patricia Clarkson before. I love Dylan Baker, Lily, uh, Lily, Larry Gilliard Jr. as um, uh, Amanda's best friend in this movie. Like they're all like good actors and have been good in other things. Like especially Dylan Baker, uh, who is in Happiness as a character <laughs> who I can't say what he did in uh, the movie Happiness, <laughs> but uh, if you want to go look that up, what he did, go for it. But it is a it is graphic, but it is a very good movie. <laughs> That's about all I can say about it. But uh, yeah, it's just a lot of stupid ideas that don't really go anywhere. It's just, it's one of those things where like, I just wanted it to be worse or better, like right in between. It's in that sweet spot of bad movies that just don't make any sort of impact. And it was just very frustrating and disappointing. And I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's pretty much how I felt about it. I mean, the humor has no taste. The characters outside of sous chef Nolan trainer played by Larry Gilliard jr. Have no bite. Mm-hmm. And the general plot is so painfully predictable and generic, you can smell it from a mile away. I, you, I just had to do these food puns. I, I'm sorry. I just... I No, it's fine. I had so it's much underst- fun doing that. And you know what? I was like, you know what? I, I had so much... I had more fun doing that than watching this movie. <laughs> Frankly, Eric, the plot was a little underdone. And I'd like to think that the performances <laughs> were quite half-baked, if you ask me. Let me tell you. Let me get... Oh, we could just keep going and we could just do this. And then uh, we could just the silence because people would shut this off after a while. <laughs> <laughs> no pretty much i honestly like i got digging like deep in the recesses of my brain and i was just thinking like what compliment can i pay this movie and honestly the only thing i could come up with is that i genuinely enjoyed the soundtrack i mean they yeah. had artists such as marcy playground semisonic on there to uh satisfy those cravings of any 90s alternative fan but um yeah outside of that i was just like god this is uh <laughs> this is just a um I'm running out of food puns here. It's bad. It's just bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, bad is a perfectly acceptable descriptor for this. And it's one of those movies, too. Like, I, I wanted it, like I said, I wanted it to be worse because the idea of the the magical crab had me so optimistic because I was like, that's such a stupid, weird thing. There's no reason it has to be a crab. It could have been a genie. It could have been... A, a fish it could have been a baguette like it could have been fucking anything yeah it's just like oh magical crab fine okay and that's really the only like weird thing in this movie like everything else is just sort of stiff and wooden like i said like sarah michelle geller an actress who i have liked in the past is sleepwalking through this movie like no emotion <laughs> nothing going on uh like I-, I could say the same for patricia clarkson and dylan baker actors i love who are just given nothing to do here uh, Larry Gilliard Jr. is the only actor who I actually kind of enjoy in this. He plays um, Bobby Boucher's friend in The Waterboy. That's where I, if you if mm, were curious, yep. that's where you probably recognize him from. And he actually does a pretty okay job. I think his characterization does have a little bit of hope and optimism to it that really lights a rather dreary story that doesn't really have much personality. All the comedy is like stiff and awkward. There's nothing really there. And by the time the conclusion rolls around, it just it just doesn't do much. There's nothing really to say other than it's just, it doesn't leave an impact. Like I can't, I could barely tell you anything that happened in this movie outside of the general feeling that it gives you. (laughs) Honestly, that's, that's a good way to summarize it. It's yeah. I just kind of threw this on. I was like, Oh yeah, I'm in the, you know, had to watch this anyway, obviously, but I was like, yeah, you know, I'm really in the mood for like a mindless movie. Let's do this. And I mean, I wish and you shall receive. It is very mindless, <laughs> but it is yeah. very frustrating because it, it just- kind of oddly <laughs> reminded me of you've got mail in a, in a weird way, which is a better movie that not much better, but I mean, it's a better movie than this, which we talked about, I think a couple of years ago on the podcast yep. as a main topic pick. It just, it's one of those things where like, yeah, I like the music and I like these actors and I like the ideas, but the execution is just so not there. Like that's the only <laughs> thing I could really compare it to where I, you've got mail was like a huge hit. This sort of just sort of, dropped off the face of the earth. There's really nothing to say about it after the fact. I was just really hoping that something goofy or funny would come out of it, even in like a weird, like mocking sort of way. But yeah, there's really not much else to say. I wanted more and got less. (laughs) (laughs) I know I'm kind of disappointed that didn't use Gino Riley more because he was one of the more like animated kind of fun characters. And we get what, like three seconds of him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, much like Christopher Lloyd in Angels in the Outfield from last episode, yeah. Christopher Durang is the weird, kooky, offbeat personality that this movie 
desperately needed a little bit more of. It just needs more personality. There's like nothing to it. And I, I want to talk about this Roger Ebert review because he gave this a yes. three out of four in the paper, which is wild to me. He describes simply irresistible as old fashioned and obvious. Yes. Like a featherweight comedy from the 1950s, but that's the charm. I love movies that cut loose from the moorings of the possible and dance among their fancies. When Woody Allen waltz with Goldie Hawn on the banks of the cyan and she floated in the air and just stayed up there. My heart danced too. And the closing scenes of Simply Irresistible are like that. It's not a great movie, but it's a charmer. It's none of those things, Roger. What are you talking about? <laughs> I stumbled upon that too in my research. And when I read that he gave it a three out of four, I swear I nearly fell out of my chair. I was like, Roger, what, what are, are we you doing saying, here? Man? Yeah, I don't know. Like, I love Ebert. He's like one of my favorite. He's my favorite. I'm just going to say he's my favorite film critic of all time. Like I think most people would say, but yeah. it's like, man, like, when he got it wrong, it's kind of <laughs> insane to look back on like 25 <laughs> years removed from it. Uh, but yeah. Ugh. But anyway, um, what was your final score for Simply Irresistible? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, obviously I'm not one for romantic comedies to begin with, but for all those reasons I mentioned previously, um, yeah, in short, Simply Irresistible is a film I just couldn't sink my teeth into. There was the last food pun. All right, <laughs> there, but, it uh, <laughs> there it is. But yeah, I gave it a two out of 10. Uh, yeah, that's fair. I oddly, <laughs> it seems, it felt like I was even more negative than you were on this. I gave it a three <laughs> out of 10 because I like Larry Gilliard Jr. in this. I think he's an yeah. underrated actor and I like seeing him pop up and stuff. I also liked the soundtrack and there was like, some little whimsicality moments here and there that I found sort of endearing, but really there's nothing that it's not even like so bad. It's good. Just avoid it. It, it. It's a movie that deserves to be forgotten. And I don't think many people are going to come back to it in the near future. I can't imagine anybody sitting down and watching this in their spare time, despite it being for free on YouTube. And I'm already sad that I told you that. <laughs> <laughs> no, for sure. I think this should just, kind of stay in the um, forgotten spaces of uh, it, it just like go back to just people not knowing that it exists. I think it's kind of better off for that. Yeah. It's like, it's like a piece of fruit that you leave in your fridge for years and years <laughs> and you come back to it and you're like, Oh, maybe this is still, Nope. It's not good. It's not good. <laughs> it's an experience, I guess, but yeah, <laughs> I Some even things felt- are just better left in the trash. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a good way to summarize it. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note of optimism again, what do you say we get into our main topic movie? (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. So for this episode, I have chosen Michael Gottlieb's 1987 film Mannequin for us to talk about. And just as a reminder, as with all of our main topic movies, this will be a full spoiler discussion. So if you don't want to be spoiled for Mannequin, this is your last chance to stop. The plot of the movie is Jonathan Switcher, an unemployed artist, finds a job as an assistant window dresser for a department store. When Jonathan happens upon a beautiful mannequin he previously designed, she springs to life and introduces herself as Emmy, an Egyptian under an ancient spell. Despite interference from the store's devious manager, Jonathan and his mannequin fall in love while creating eye-catching window displays to keep the struggling store in business. So, yeah, very much like our anniversary pick, I've been morbidly (laughs) curious about this movie for a while now. The plot and tone of the preview was enough on its own for me to add to my watch list. And in search of an offbeat pick for our Valentine's Day episode, I decided to go with my gut and cross this off the list. Mannequin in general is not well known in today's cultural stratosphere, but it was a surprisingly big hit at the box office, managing to make $43 million in the U.S. against an $8 million budget and squeaking out a poorly received sequel called Mannequin 2 on The Moved, which was a box office bomb. Still, though, is there anything worth getting out of Mannequin under current day evaluation? Well, we're here to find out. So, Eric, with all that being said, what did you think of Mannequin? (laughs) Honestly, when you first pitched Mannequin, I had a very similar response as to when you pitched Simply Irresistible. I was like, there's no way this movie even exists. You're, You're making this up. (laughs) (laughs) so i mean it did make a very interesting double feature for that reason but yeah i'll be honest i while i wouldn't go on out and defend this on a hill and say that mannequin is the best movie ever made everyone needs to watch it i mean i think it's got more of an audience than simply irresistible and i i actually enjoyed my experience admittedly more with mannequin than i did with simply irresistible it's i don't know the best way to describe it is it's um it's definitely not perfect. You have to suspend belief a little bit and just kind of enjoy the moment of it and just kind of get caught up in that. Like it's dumb and it's fun. I feel like is the best way to describe it, but 
Yeah, there's some little bits and pieces that you could take away from it, but I could also understand why it would not be someone's cup of tea as well. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, that was kind of my expectation. I want I went in hoping this would be like again, a diamond in the rough sort of thing where you can enjoy it for how goofy and weird and crazy the entire experience is. Maybe there would be something we could pull out of it to have like a funny conversation on. And I'm sure we will. And I agree with you. Like, yes, this falls into that same genre as simply irresistible though. This I would say is a lot goofier and more overtly wacky than simply irresistible is where simply irresistible, I think has way more serious moments where mannequin is dipped in a lot of eighties cheese and it's, it's very tongue in cheek and straightforward mm -hmm. with its comedy. It's never like it's, I didn't understand this was a movie that was intentionally going to try and make you laugh, like try and pitch <laughs> jokes and tell jokes and things like that. I didn't expect that to be this type of movie. And at first, as we get into the plot, I thought it was going to be like that, where it's going to be a lot more intentional and it's intentional, but I feel like it puts its chips on a lot of the wrong squares instead of bringing you in with like really likable characters and, and uh, I don't know, like interesting sort of dilemmas and things like that. I, I think a lot of it is just so madcap and zany that it comes off more annoying than it is successful at trying to like really sell it, sell you on its premise alone. And I feel like its sense of humor really wears its welcome out as we get into the film. But yeah, I was more annoyed than anything. I would say this is better than Simply Irresistible, if not by much, but it's still it's still not very good. <laughs> I can't really defend it much more than that. <laughs> it's funny because I could literally copy and paste basically that same review that you just said for Mannequin, but just for Mannequin 2. Like Mannequin 2, I was... <laughs> I, I mean, I did the Lord's work here, and I, I yeah, watched you did. Mannequin and I appreciate and your Mannequin I, I appreciate your dedication, by the way. Thank you for <laughs> taking that bullet. So I did not have to. Thank you for being my bulletproof vest <laughs> this episode. <laughs> no, you're totally fine. But um, no, like, and, and, and not to get on a too far of a tangent or, or a rabbit hole here with Mannequin 2, but that's, that's literally the response I had with that one, to where I had enough fun with mannequin to where I was like, you know what? At this point, I'm curious to see how mannequin two is because I enjoyed mannequin more than I, I thought I would. Like I wasn't like overly annoyed with the, the jokes or the sense of humor. I thought like some of it was actually kind of funny. It cheesy for sure. Uh, there's no denying that, but for whatever reason, like it was, it was like so dumb and so over the top that I couldn't help but laugh at it. So I was like, you know what? I'll give mannequin two a shot. And yeah, Mannequin 2 is just is just bad, bad. Like it was it definitely falls into that category of <laughs> more annoying than it is actually funny or memorable. Mm -hmm. And um and uh, also too, so the director of a Mannequin 2 which is <laughs> going full circle here. I don't know if you noticed this, but the director of Mannequin 2 is the same director who did Mac and Me, which we talked about. <laughs> I saw that. that. I did see that actually. That's actually very <laughs> funny. Because I looked up, I saw that it was a different director this time. Not to say, yeah. like, not to pour a ton of praise onto Michael Gottlieb, because he did co-write this as well. But the, yeah. he's only directed three major studio films that I noticed. He's directed this, A Kid in King Arthur's Court, featuring Thomas Ian Nichols from it's like a 95 Disney movie. It like came and went. It's like very forgettable. I actually watched it for the first time last year and I like mm -hmm. couldn't even get through half of it. It was just so <laughs> boring and lame. And then the, and Mr. Nanny starring uh, Hulk Hogan. So yes. he's got, a, he definitely has a type of movie. He likes to uh, <laughs> not, maybe not like to make, maybe he just gets assigned to direct stuff. I don't know. I, Cause I think Mr. Nanny, he also co-wrote too. I noticed. So he's definitely a passion project kind of guy, which I sort of, sort of respect a little bit. I, I'm sure he's got friends in Hollywood that helped him bring his dream to life, but yeah, man, he's, he's swinging <laughs> for the fences and, and not, and, and not making it to first plate. Let me tell you. But outside yeah. of that, yeah, I, it's man, I did notice that about the sequel though. And it was very disheartening <laughs> to read that he still got work after that movie. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely. And as Stuart Raffel, that's, that's, uh, that's the yes. director. I had it in my notes and I just was like, I got to say his name. But I, I was like, I know I have it written somewhere. But yeah. And that came out in 1991. But um, yeah, and it, it's funny because I don't know. We already talked to him in the previous episode. But yeah, Mac and me was one of those to where like I it's not good by any means, but it's so off the wall and ridiculous. Like I still had some fun with it. Um, and I was hoping that would kind of be the case with Mannequin 2. But uh, yeah, that <laughs> was not the case, unfortunately. Just be careful, though, because if you stay Stuart Raphael three times in the mirror, he he um, comes through the mirror and he forces you to watch Mac and me again, Clockwork Orange style. So just be aware of that. 
<laughs> I thought you were just gonna say like he like comes out and, like feeds you McDonald's or something like that because that's all I could think about with the-, the. You know, honestly, that would actually be a better version of that. I'm like, oh, thanks, buddy. It's like, ah, oh, there's pickles on it. Fuck. <laughs> Damn it, Stuart Rappel, not again. Oh, oh my god, you you sneaky motherfucker. <laughs> that's all I can really say. Oh my god. Well. Before I make even less friends in Hollywood, let's go ahead and get started with this plot. All right. So in ancient Egypt, Emma Emmy Heshire, played by Kim Cattrall, takes refuge in a pyramid, pleading to the gods that she finds true love rather than enter an arranged marriage. Emmy suddenly vanishes before her mother's eyes. Meanwhile, in 1987, Philadelphia, Jonathan Switcher, played by Andrew McCarthy, is a sculptor working at a mannequin warehouse and finishes a single female mannequin he considers a masterpiece. His boss fires him for spending time trying to make his mannequin works of art rather than assembling several each day. Jonathan takes a number of odd jobs and is fired each time for working too slowly because he tries to make each project artistic. His girlfriend, Roxy Shield, an employee of the Illustra department store, dumps him, criticizing him as a flake. After his motorcycle breaks down in the rain, Jonathan passes the Prince and Company department store. Seeing his mannequin in the display window, he remarks she is the first work that made him feel like a true artist. The next morning, he saves store owner Claire Timken from being injured by her own shop sign. Grateful, Claire orders store manager Mr. Richards, who is secretly paid by Illustra to sabotage Prince and Company so it can be bought, played by James Spader, to give Jonathan a job. Viewed with suspicion by security guard Captain Felix Maxwell, when Jonathan is putting together a window display, the mannequin he made comes to life with Emmy's spirit. She says she has existed for centuries as a, as a muse, sometimes inhabiting the works of an artist she admires and inspires. She has encountered amazing people, but has never found true love. Emmy explains the gods allow her life when she and Jonathan are unobserved. Otherwise, she is a mannequin. And exhale. Jesus <laughs> Christ, there is so much plot in this fucking movie. Okay, I think I think we're good now. So with all that being said, Eric, what do you think of the beginning of Mannequin? <laughs> No, honestly, I thought the intro was pretty fun. I mean, the backstory in Egypt yes. is a bit tongue in cheek for sure, but not offensive or anything that took me out of it necessarily. And the animation that follows is pretty cool and mesmerizing. I mean, it's it's pretty much par for the course for something I'd expect from an 80s fantasy comedy. I, I did think establishing Jonathan as a detail oriented sculptor was a pretty funny and effective like comedic thread and seeing him continuously getting fired from like faster paced jobs like Dude, clearly you're not picking like the right <laughs> type of industry at all. Like these fast paced environments. He's like, b- like super artistic and meticulous with like making pizzas and stuff like that. Like it's stupid, but it's funny. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, it's funny when this movie opened up the first attempt at comedy actually got a little bit of a giggle out of me. It was like the opening coda where it sets the the stage a little bit. It comes up on screen. Edfu Egypt a really long time ago that got a giggle out of me right before lunch. That also got a giggle out of me. I was like, well, is this movie going to be funny? Like, is this movie actually going to be good? Like the trailer made me think that it, like, it's a disaster in real time, but those first couple of jokes, like they're not that funny, but they got giggles out of me. That's all. It's very positive. And I was like, not expecting to laugh at all during this. So it was kind of a delight to have the opening joke, make me giggle a little bit. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like it was one of those things. I, um, yeah, a lot of the production design in this movie, too, is is definitely like romantic comedy 80s sort of thing. It's not super high budget. It was made for, what did I say, $8 million? Like, that's not a very high budget, mm-hmm. even in 1987, that you're not getting a whole lot of bang for your buck there. Like, there's really no big movie stars in this yet. I mean, James Spader would go on to have a pretty fruitful career. Same with Kim Cattrall. She would be in various romantic comedies and obviously on Sex and the City. But there's really nothing selling this as like a huge budget project. The fact that this movie made five times its money back, I was actually kind of surprised by. I thought it was going to have a simply (laughs) irresistible sort of story where it barely (laughs) even touched its budget back. But it was like, I guess it had the right push behind it and it made some money. So go figure. Yeah. And I was going to say, too, I mean, looking in retrospect, I'm sure you came upon this in your research, too. But Mannequin actually did get an Academy Award for uh, or Academy Award nomination for Best Original Song for Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now by Starship, which is a banger, by the way. So Yeah, I, I did not know that. I, I'm glad you mentioned that. I didn't know that. Um, yeah, <laughs> which that is makes crazy. sense. It yeah. makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I get it for sure. Um, uh, what Do you know what did win that year? Yes, I, I do know that, actually. So I have this pulled up right here. 
So best original song from the Oscars that year was I've Had the Time of My Life from Dirty Dancing, which, fuck, I mean, what a competitive year. <laughs> that is. Do you um do you have what else was nominated? I'm just curious. Like, that deserved yeah. a, I mean, the Dirty Dancing song is the winner. I mean, like, there's no other no, way. I can't imagine what yeah. else would have beaten that. I'm very yeah, curious so now. Also um, nominated was uh, Cry Freedom from Cry Freedom. Uh, yeah, Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now from Mannequin. Uh, Shakedown from Beverly Hills Cop 2 and Storybook Love from The Princess Bride. Fuck, what a stacked year. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because usually when the Oscars nominate Best Original Song choices, they go with a lot more variety. And uh, yeah, like this year, for example, you have those two songs from Barbie. You have like a piano-laden ballad uh, that Billie Eilish wrote. You have the, um, you have I'm Just Ken, which is like a big, like more goofy, eccentric sort of passionate song you have uh the song from killers of the flower moon which is like a very straightforward like um native american piece that's all i can really say about it and um then there's that song from flame and hot whatever that bullshit is and then there's the song from american symphony that john batiste wrote so they're all like similar like big impassioned songs but they're not really pop songs of the time i feel like there's more of a, a desire for them to be like more pieces and like uh, I don't know, like more appropriate to the movies themselves. But I don't know. It's interesting to think that like that that far back we had like uh, like just four straight up just 80s songs. Like they're just like of the time <laughs> sort of pop songs. There's like a lot. There's not really a lot of distinction. Yeah, definitely. Because that was the other compliment that I play man or that I pay mannequin as well is that like I really dug the soundtrack and the overall aesthetics of it. It's it's very much a timepiece for sure. Like it feels dated in the best way possible. So Part of that, to me, added kind of to the charm. I know others could probably make the same argument of just, oh, it's, you know, stuck in the past or like stuck in a certain time period or whatever. But I mean, I I thought that kind of added to the charm. It was kind of fun in that way. For sure. And I don't know if you've got this vibe at all. Like, I can understand that argument for it, like in defense of its corniness and cheesiness. And like, it's clearly like trying to be that. So I kind of admire that it's not trying to be anything else. It's just being its goofy self and whether or not I connected with that uh, (laughs) just stands to reason. Uh, But I also felt like this movie was also just trying to just, it felt like it was sort of in the wake of Back to the Future a little bit, which came out two years prior and it just felt like sort of like, uh, I don't know, like, I don't know. <laughs> Andrew McCarthy, like, even looks like, like, discount Michael J. Fox in a lot of ways. And I couldn't really, <laughs> I couldn't really shake that when I was watching the film. I just felt like I was watching, like, uh, a lesser version of a movie I love. Um, that was, like, a huge, much bigger success sort of thing. But I don't know. It just never fully clicked with me. I always just felt like it was trying to be something else or trying to be, like, successful based on something that already previously existed. It's something like that. Yeah, and I can get that for sure. I mean, personally, I thought Andrew McCarthy and Kim Cattrall had like good chemistry and I thought they had just good stage presence were entertaining throughout it. But yeah, I mean, outside of the the fantasy elements, I mean, yeah, the plot's pretty cut and dried. And I mean, even if if some of the jokes feel a bit dated and the humor can be hit or miss, I mean, I, I still think in large part the characters work well and are memorable in some capacity. Uh, especially Hollywood Montrose. I don't know if you had any thoughts on his character at all. Yeah, you know, honestly, like, he was funny at first, and then (laughs) after about five minutes, I got kind of sick of him. And, like, look, (laughs) I'm all for representation. I'm all for gay representation in film. Mm -hmm. This is is fucking obnoxious and, like, (laughs) an impression of a what people thought gay people were like back then. And, like, not only that, but all gay people were like this. So... Definitely doesn't hold up under today's evaluation. Obviously, LGBT representation is way fucking better in 2024 than it was in 1987. Yeah. Uh, the fact that there is a gay character in this at all is like is kind of admirable in a way because you could have just mm-hmm. not had him. You could have just had him being like a sassy woman, then a sassy woman with the same, and you could have still kept a lot of the same sort of emotional beats and uh, com- comic timing. But uh, yeah, but you chose to make him gay and I respect that for sure. I just wish he was funnier outside of just being eccentric and flamboyant. I I wanted something more to his character or just to just slow down a little bit Mm -hmm. while I processed him. (laughs) Yeah, no, and that's fair. I mean, like (laughs) I got to I mean, I got to give props to his fashion sense and everything, too. He had incredible fashion sense in the movie. And that that was like uh, (laughs) kind of a cool draw and everything, too. Yeah, that. The jokes could be hit or miss too, but, uh, and not to keep going back to this point or anything too, but it's funny because I feel like, cause Hollywood Montrose is like one of the only characters that 
that comes back in Mannequin 2 uh, to reprise oh, the role. Okay. So, like, everyone else is different. Um, but, like, Hollywood Montrose is still in it. And, like, so... But what's funny is that all the jokes that I feel like... All the jokes and all the quirks that I didn't work or I got annoyed with from the first one are just repeated like crazy and brought to 11 in the second one. It's like, no, I, these are the ones that I didn't like. It's just nothing but like, like shrieks and high pitched noises and weird, stupid antics. And it's just like, (sighs) these are like all the jokes that didn't work in the first one. And you're just repeating them like crazy in the second one when they didn't work to begin with. (laughs) Yeah. And and another thing too, about like Montrose as a Hollywood Montrose as a character too there's really nothing about him outside of just like being a, like a magical quip machine as Patton Oswalt has described, like gay best friend characters are. There's really Mm -hmm. nothing about him other than just saying like joke, 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 joke over and over and over again. That makes me think this movie is pro gay in any way. It just seems like, Mm -hmm. it it just seems like, it just seems like just a straightforward gay character. That's like just making jokes. And I, I'm okay with that in theory, but I just would also (laughs) like a little bit more dimension to the characters. Like when your gay character has as much dimension as the, the cop, like this weird cop and his dog character sort of thing. Like, Oh, I'm just a gruff, like no nonsense cop. That's all I have. I would like a little bit more to my characters. I don't know. I, I feel like romantic comedies have come far in a lot of ways in this film just sort of stays stagnant in its sort of like of today feelings and, and quips and stuff like that. It just, it just doesn't connect for me personally, I guess. No, that's fair. I I'd say that the only, or the main dimension I'd say that Hollywood Montrose provides is that um, Hollywood, you know, has Jonathan's back and, and uh, you know, and especially in later parts of the film, you know, helps ward off the security guards and all that other stuff. And like, it's kind of like a supporting character to Jonathan so that Jonathan can succeed and run off with them and stuff. So like, I appreciated Hollywood's presence for that purpose. Like he, you know, he, he does good overall, you know, for the the sake of the main character and stuff and provides support that way. So I'd say that's, you know, a very, a very admirable and redeemable dimension that Hollywood provides for sure. But I also get to, to where like outside of that, it's just, you know, joke, joke, joke. And beating the same dead horse with the the same types of jokes. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I I wanted to like him. I'm, I'm very, I'm very pro gay people in movies, Mm -hmm. but at the same time though, like I'm also pro interesting complex characters and I wanted that from pretty much everybody because I feel like I agree with you that Andrew McCarthy and Kim Cattrall as actors have good chemistry but I don't like either of their characters like at all I I think (laughs) I think Jonathan Switcher as a character is way too smarmy and winky to be likable I I think I don't I'm not sad at all when he gets fired for trying to be a perfectionist on the job I will say the pizza Mm -hmm. that he makes does look very good in the intro I I would eat that pizza But I also understand from an employer perspective, yeah, you shouldn't be taking this much time. I feel like you're so full of yourself and how great of an artist you are when, yeah, I'm sorry, like sometimes you just have to get the job done and you do art on your spare time in your spare time sort of thing. Like that's what life is. It sucks. But I feel like I don't know. It's one of those things like, I don't know. That's why we have a podcast, because I I do have a corporate job that I do that I make my money at. And then the other third of my life when I'm not sleeping, I do creative stuff like watch movies and write reviews and have a podcast and shit like that. But yeah, it's one of those things like he's just so self-centered and focused on on colliding art with his profession as part of his job. And I don't really find that relatable in a way. I just find it Mm -hmm. really annoying and self-centered in a way. (laughs) And I honestly feel bad for his girlfriend, Roxy. Like I actually kind of empathize a little bit more for her. And she's like a corporate stooge (laughs) sort of thing, like working for the (laughs) enemy department store across the street. So yeah, it's one of those things where I... I, I disagree with this movie like theor- like in concept. I disagree with it like from a comedic standpoint because it's so obnoxious mm-hmm. and making jokes all the time. And I disagree with it like metaphorically too, like what it's trying to imply and say through its comedy. I'm like, oh my God, I just want this movie to stop talking like altogether. It's like one of those experiences. <laughs> <laughs> no, and that's fair. And I think that's what ultimately leads to the disconnect a lot with this film because it appeals to those type of people who can suspend beliefs and reality and just kind of immerse themselves in the experience because 
I mean, just given the the premise and the plot and everything that happens, I mean, this film definitely swings for the fences and there's like next to nothing grounded in reality in this. So it's like, Mm -mm. I feel like it's a film that's not meant to be taken seriously. And if you're like cool, like rolling with it and lean on the side of just like, okay, take none of this shit seriously and just like, (laughs) and just, and just see if you enjoy the the experience and in the moment of it. Um, there's some people I can completely understand why they get annoyed with that because they just nothing really makes sense and the jokes don't land for them. So it's just kind of a miserable experience. So yeah, <laughs> definitely, definitely one where I feel like this is like a classic example where like the right type of person would vibe with this. And if, and if you're not that person, you would like <laughs> be grinding your teeth through this entire movie. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's why this movie does work well for a Films with a Void conversation, because this movie doesn't even have that bad of a reputation. It's not like a Simply Irresistible yeah. where everyone, except Roger Eper, apparently, everyone <laughs> universally agrees it's shit and just should be forgotten. This movie had a higher average on Letterboxd. That's a 2.9, which is like just below mm-hmm. average. Like it's almost like by Letterboxd terms, it's almost quote unquote fresh. Uh, like yeah. on tomato meter standpoints, like a three and above, I consider like a, at, at least pretty good or at least an okay movie. But yeah. yeah, it's one of those movies where I think more people are willing to suspend their disbelief, suspend their disbelief a little bit and accept that it's very goofy and quirky and kooky. But I, I'm not really that kind of person. I look for other <laughs> sort of stuff for my comedy. So I, I yeah. didn't have a good time with it. But I do <laughs> think it's important to have conversations about these movies because it can also explain people's disconnects but also people's connects if that makes sense mm-hmm. <laughs> like why they enjoy something yeah no yeah definitely and i mean just based off our overall experience with it and i mean when we get into scores and stuff yeah no this is like a perfect film to 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 recommend for those reasons because i know we're both kind of on either side of the fence with it like we're both on opposing sides of the fence with it <laughs> <laughs> for sure. And yeah, I uh, a couple things before we get into the next part of the plot. Um I th- this movie's rated PG. It's definitely a PG before PG-13 existed sort of movie. Yeah. I think that this movie <laughs> probably would it's really close. Like it's it's kookiness makes me think that like it's it's not really meant for children though. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. it's sort of like but it's it's also not it's it's like for kooky teenagers. That's the only thing I can really describe it as. It's just kind of goofy. But there's really nothing overtly wrong or sexual about it. There's nothing like winking to the camera. It's not edgy in the slightest. But I, um, it's one of those movies. It's very close. Like I honestly think its target audience is like eleven to twelve, and there's really not much else outside of that. It, it reminds me <laughs> of that 2004 movie Sleepover with Alexa Vega a little bit, but it's also not really for kids. There's nothing about this that's really for kids. I just feel like, what did you think about it? Like, what do you think, who do you think this movie's target audience is? <laughs> no, that's, uh, no, you bring up a lot of good points there because yeah, I would, I wouldn't say the themes necessarily are directed towards kids. Like they're adult themes in some capacity. Like, yeah. So I guess young teens because, uh, young teens, they got a weird offbeat sense of humor, I guess would be the closest audience for this. Cause yeah, it's, I, I mean, especially given, I mean, I hate to be that person. Like, oh, it was a different time period than all this other stuff and everything. But I don't think they do. <laughs> given all the other stuff available at that time, I mean, it was kind of par for the course for, I guess, some quote unquote, like kids, early teens material. Because it wasn't like overly like offensive or anything for the time period. There are definitely some jokes now to where you look back and you're like, oh, ooh. you know what I mean? Like, it's just a very yeah. weird or offbeat joke. It's like. Yeah, people wouldn't really make that joke anymore. <laughs> but, but for the time period, I mean, it's kind of normal. <laughs> yeah, the only thing I can really think of, I think the reason we don't see a lot of movies with this sort of pers- like per- like overbearing personality at the forefront is because a lot of movies like this, I think are still getting made. They're just going to streaming services. I don't think a movie like this these days is strong enough to put in theaters universally because I think it has a very limited audience because I think it's too... It's too out there for most normal people. Like, I don't think you would get a lot of people in like Ponca City, Oklahoma rushing to see this. But I also don't think you would get a lot of people outside of 10 to 13 that would find interest in this or maybe people that would go. I don't think there's people a lot of people that would go see this that would like it's one of those things where like I don't think it's a movie where a lot of people outside of its core demographic would run out to see. But at the same time though, like there weren't as many options back then and it made $43 million. So who am I, <laughs> who do I to say? So I don't know. It's a hard movie to place. It's very weird. It's very dis- distinct and strange. 
I know. Yeah, it's no, for sure. I mean, if if this same film were to be released today, I agree. Like it would just go straight to streaming services and then probably largely be forgotten or just, you know, thrown into the mix with all these other very run of the mill romantic comedies that just go like straight to Amazon video or something that like, yeah, you know, may have a okay joke here and there, but then get forgotten (laughs) by like next year or two years later. For sure. And one thing I want to add, I know we're 40 minutes through this and this podcast is typically like an hour 15. So like, and I know we're also talking about this movie and analyzing it differently than just by plot point by plot point. So uh, I'm just going to go into the next part of the plot, but I I don't because I don't want to keep us too much longer. But yeah, I just want to say I recognize that this is a weird conversation. So (laughs) anyway, (laughs) Uh, with Emmy's help, Jonathan's window display is a massive success. Now placed in charge of visual merchandising, Jonathan asks Emmy, to continue helping with the displays. Over several weeks, they create several popular displays, attracting new business while also deepening their relationship. Montrose realizes Jonathan loves a mannequin he created but does not judge him. Illustra's chief executive, BJ Wirt, sends Roxy to poach Jonathan, and but he refuses, saying he now works for people who value him. Annoyed by Felix's ineptitude and Richard's attitude towards Jonathan, Claire fires them. Deeply impressed with his work, Claire makes Jonathan vice president of the department store. That's really funny to think about. Uh, One night, Jonathan (laughs) takes Emmy through the city on his motorcycle, despite how unusual this seems to bystanders. He is witnessed by Richards and Felix to conclude he is deeply fixated on a female mannequin. So really right here, we have the connective tissue of the movie. I don't have a ton to say about this part. Um, As the plot amps up, did you have any thoughts? Uh, the main thing I, I have noted in my notes, kind of like we were talking about before, is suspended from from reality. One of my main takeaways, like, how does Jonathan go from, like, basically being unemployable to moving up to vice president in, like, a week? <laughs> yeah, like, a sto- he goes from, like, being a stock boy, essentially, to vice president of the company. That's like making an iPhone. <laughs> That's like making iPhones, and then next week you are reporting to Steve Jobs. That's how, like, crazy this is. It's kind of insane. Yeah. It's, I know, and, and the only reason I kind of give it a pass is because the movie is just so ridiculous and, and off the wall anyway that, like, it's like I said, I mean, you can't really take everything seriously anyway, because so I was just like, I kind of give it a pass for that reason, because it, it this film never really takes itself seriously, like at all. No. So, so I was just like, it's it's so off the wall and ridiculous that like, yeah, like I said, I was just like, it's it's weird and it's stupid and it's it's kooky, but it kind of fits the bill of everything else I've been establishing. <laughs> for sure it, it, and that's the thing like i said if i liked these characters more or liked these actors like on paper more like i've seen some of these actors do go on to do better things obviously like james spader is a great actor who obviously took this because he needed a paycheck because it was the the late 80s and he wasn't like stupid famous yet but other than that like i, I don't know if i liked andrew mccarthy or kim Cattrall moore's actors on paper i think i could sort of apply their presence to other things they've been in to this and sort of get some joy out of it. But I don't really have a lot of context for a lot of these actors outside of what I've seen them in and what I've seen them in doesn't really grab me in a big way. So that's kind of my only big thoughts on it is that I think if I liked these actors more, I would get behind the gooky, the kookiness a little bit more, but outside of that, there's really not much to go off of. So I would say if you're a big Andrew McCarthy fan or a Kim Cattrall fan, you would get a, a especially get a kick out of this. But um, but I mean, hey, talking to you who got something out of this, Eric, and I don't think you've seen any <laughs> anything that other either of these actors have done other than that. So I, maybe my maybe my theory is flawed. No, yeah, not real. I mean, um, <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that because I've been tracking some of my letterbox, like all time stats lists and star lists. And it's it's funny because since I've watched like this and the sequel like i've they've been coming up more in my like top stars for the year which is kind of hilarious <laughs> like some of the oh okay <laughs> i mean but no oh in large God. part um no i haven't really i don't have much experience with uh with andrew mccarthy or kim Cattrall or anything like that so n- nothing nothing major that attaches me to them that i know of by the end of the year, I would love it if you just went down a Mashak Taylor uh, like rabbit hole and just watched everything that he's he's the actor that plays Hollywood. Yeah. If you just went down like a rabbit hole of everything he's done, because he's done. Let me look. He's done The Howling, House of Games, Explorers, uh, Double Double Toil and Trouble, the uh, the fucking uh, <laughs> Derek Ate and Ashley Halloween movie. Oh, he was in that. <laughs> 
that mannequin sequel that you also watched, yeah. The Secret of Nim 2, Class Act. Like, there's some winners on this. He's also in one of those scary um, Ronald McDonald animated VHS tapes, too. So that's pretty funny. Oh, God. Oh man, quite the range. You know, Mashak Taylor like actually came up in my thing and that's what made me think of it. I was just like, that's too funny. Like I kind of want to keep this going. <laughs> yeah. Oh, very much. Yeah. At this point, you just kind of have to commit to the bit and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, like, but um, I will say though, outside of that, you know, like climbing the corporate ladder thing, I, seeing the shots of like Jonathan just lugging a mannequin around and everybody just staring at him was pretty funny to me just because like, like when you actually... Yes. It's almost like that. That's when the humor, I think, in this works really well when it grounds itself and it's like what's actually happening. It's just like, yeah, he looks like he's off his rocker. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I will say I don't think that stuff is bad on paper. Something a very similar concept that I think works a lot better in practice. Uh, it reminded me a lot of Ratatouille, oddly enough, where uh, <laughs> like sort of there's those like psych out moments where the chef is trying to capture Linguini and Remy pulling off this ruse because he suspects something is up under his hat. And there's like those there's like those big montage scenes where he's like trying to capture the hat or like catch him in like a in a weird spot or something, or he thinks he sees, uh, that the chef sees something that might be what he's thinking it is. But I think Brad Bird is such a great comedic director in orchestrating those sort of set pieces and um, like communicating it through the visuals and style where this film, I don't think does it that well, but I do see what was <laughs> attempted. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. <laughs> For sure. All right, so I'm going to say the rest of the plot, and we're just going to talk about the rest of the movie until the end, basically. So, <laughs> yeah. Richards and Felix, who now works for Illustra, steal the female mannequins from Prince and Company. And the next morning, Jonathan confronts Wirt about the theft, who makes another job offer. Furious over Jonathan caring so much about the mannequin he calls Emmy, Roxy storms off. Jonathan follows Roxy while being pursued by security guards, including Felix. Wirt and Rogers demand the police be called. Roxy loads the stolen mannequins into the store's large trash compactor, then is knocked out by debris. As Hollywood holds the pursuers at bay with a fire hose, a, com- uh, a janitor watches Jonathan jump onto the compactor's conveyor belt to save the mannequin that is Emmy. As Jonathan risks her life for her, Emmy comes to life. Once safe, she realizes she is truly and permanently alive again. Emmy thanks the gods for uniting her with her true love, and Jonathan promises to love her forever. Oh my God, I have another paragraph to read. Okay, all right. <laughs> it's insane because like these two paragraphs are the last 10 minutes of the movie, and I have to explain it all because that's the only way to explain it. <laughs> I know, I know. Jesus, okay, all right. All right. While the janitor wonders if other mannequins will come to life, Hollywood arrives and realizes Emmy was alive the entire time. Felix and his fellow guards rush in, followed by Wirt and Rogers, who demand that the police arrest Jonathan. Claire arrives, revealing she has security video of Richards and Felix breaking and entering and committing theft. She accuses Wirt of conspiracy, and Jonathan adds the man also um, kidnapped Emmy. Wirt fires Roxy as he is arrested and hauled away alongside Richards and Felix. Jonathan realizes the security footage may have shown him being romantic with a mannequin, but Claire coyly suggests he should not worry about that. Sometime later, Jonathan and Emmy are married in the store window of Prince and Company with Claire as maid of honor and Hollywood as best man. Numerous pedestrians outside the store window applaud the wedding. Okay, there you go. All right. (laughs) Exhale again. Okay, so... Yeah, like I said, there is a lot that has to be explained away in the last like 15 minutes of this movie. And I think that's another reason why I just straight up did not like it because I just thought it was lazy. I just thought it was like it it did not budget its time well. And we're just sort of (laughs) left in the wake of all of this cluster fuck of plot. (laughs) I hate saying that. It's uh, yeah, it's a lot of script and a lot of stuff that you have to write away. And it just was very it's really, it's just dead on arrival to me. Like it, none of it impressed me. None of it made me really laugh. I just thought it was annoying and frustrating. Eric, what'd you think of the last yeah. 10 minutes of this movie? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I will say I did oddly enough, like enjoy that fire hose scene. Just be, like, not so much like the, <laughs> not so much like the 80% of it, like the actual act of just Hollywood spraying these guards with the fire hose. Like, yeah. You know, I mean, it, th- not so much that, but it's funny because this film doesn't use like a ton of profanity by any means. But like, no, <laughs> I'll admit when they do, it's actually kind of effective, or at least it was for me, because when they just like, like, oh, we can just shut off the hose. Like, I don't know why no one ever thought of that, but then they just shut it off and then it just pans Holly when you're just like, shit, like I, it's stupid, but it's like so funny because it's just like, 
<laughs> they could have done this like the whole time. And then it's just like, I don't know, the comedic timing of that I actually thought was pretty funny. And then there's like yeah. one other time where it's just like, like I said, I mean, there's like, I think there's literally, those are the only two times that profanity was like ever used in this movie. There's that. And then there's <laughs> when the security guard has like his new dog named Terminator and he like six him after Jonathan. And then the dogs like barking, going crazy, but then he just runs past Jonathan. <laughs> the guard's like, shit. And he like chase the dog. Like that actually was funny to me. Like, I think the, I think the little sprinkling of just like those jokes and, and like, um, I like, I don't know. Those really stood out to me in a way that I actually thought was pretty funny. <laughs> For sure. I will give this movie some credit. I did think that not really because of the execution, but I will say like, I agree with you where he's like shit after the, after the <laughs> extinguisher runs out of water. Like I was like, okay, fine. That made me laugh a little bit. Also uh, the act of like, Oh no, the hose, like I can't walk past a bunch of water. You know what I mean? There's like nine cops getting like blocked up by this water. So like, yeah, an execution that was kind of funny. And uh, there was a little bit of comic timing. There's also a bit earlier in the movie where the cop gets his head stuck between two elevator doors that made me giggle a little bit because I was like, okay, you and intentionally tried to make me laugh and the expression and the timing was okay. So, you know what? I'll give you a point for that. But a lot of the movie, I just didn't really think affected me very much. And I feel like how much it tries to write away at the end of the film in, uh, in favor of just sort of a happy sort of uh, finale. That's, I think it's kind of unforgivable because it's so, it just comes off as lazy more. There's nothing really like that. I felt was intentional. That was, Oh yeah, we meant to do this. Therefore, we should have your respect if that makes sense. <laughs> no, I, yeah, for sure. Cause there's definitely some jokes that are like more that just don't really work. And they're just like either annoying or not funny or just uncomfortable or whatever. Like one in particular that I'm thinking of is, is <laughs> when like the janitor is like thinking like, like other people or like all the mannequins are going to come back to life. And he basically just straight up starts like sexually assaulting Roxy thinking that like, she's like a mannequin that just came to life. I was like, it's like so like weird and awkward. I was like, I know this is like meant to be a joke, but this is just bizarre and kind of strange. Yeah, it's not Porky's bad. Like, you can get way yeah. worse with, like, late 70s, early 80s college yeah. comedies. Like, all of those are just fucking cesspools of misogyny and disgusting shit. But, <laughs> the, yeah, for but also at the same time, though, this is also targeted towards, what, ugh, fucking younger girls and teenagers <laughs> and, and maybe, yeah. like, some that are in college, I guess. Like, that's really all I can say about the market, the, the active audience for this movie. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. You can also get a lot worse with it. I, I don't know. Progress yeah. is incremental. I got to remember that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I And I mean, you know, like I said, I mean, this film never really establishes. It's one of those to where like you can't think too much about it because the more you think about it, the more you're like, none of this shit makes any sense at all. You just kind of have to roll with it because like to me, I don't think it was ever really clear how like Emily, Emmy just like permanently got brought back to life. I mean, like kind of maybe I think it, yeah, was, they it just, was like. It just was an accepted fact kind of after the thing, after they fell in love or whatever. I was like, uh, okay. Like, it was like one of those weird things you had to accept. I was like, it was a little strange. Like, it just felt very, yeah, like <laughs> half thought out, rushed, contrived, and just like all of a sudden we're at this, you know, wedding, happy, happy ever after. Like, it's it ties everything into a nice bow, I guess, which is nice. But yeah, obviously to get there, it's very cheesy and predictable. <laughs> Yeah, I will say there's a lot of uh, real like stakes and factors that are never really defined with this movie. And look, I'm not expecting the world. I'm not expecting a masterpiece. But at the same time, though, like I do have some expectations. I will say that I am happy that it didn't try to write in a bunch of rules that you're expected to follow throughout the plot that are overly complicated. I'm glad that they yeah. just don't tell you. It's just sort of, yep, you saved your life. Yeah, she's alive now. Okay, it, fuck you. That's basically all you're yeah. getting like at the <laughs> end of the day. But uh, I will say that it, there are way there, uh, there are way wor worse ways of handling it, but there are also better means of explaining this sort of thing. Like at the end of Shrek, for example, like spoilers for Shrek if you haven't seen Shrek. But <laughs> essentially... Shrek and Fiona admit that they love each other and she kisses him and then she takes true love's form and she's still an ogre, but that's who Shrek, Shrek accepts her for who she is. And that's, that's a really mm. good way of handling your moral. And this yeah. is all, that's also a, a fairy tale way of handling uh, how much like you're willing to sacrifice and devote to the person you love in order to, to be with them. Like that's love and that's romance. But I, I, 
I'm glad that they didn't go overboard with trying to explain away stupid shit. But at the same time, though, I feel like there are better ways of handling it, too. I I don't want to give it a pass entirely. Yeah, no, for sure. Because there's definitely some movies that I got really frustrated with in the past for that reason, too, to where they're like they're trying to explain the rules of the universe like like it like you know, addressing the elephant in the room, like, oh, you probably have questions about this. Well, it's because so-and-so or, oh, it must be because of this. But the the rules are, like, overly complicated or they're, like, I just feel like they back at themselves into a corner when they do that. And, like, I hate when films just do that, honestly. Like, if the only way that you can get away with, like, explaining it is if it's, like, airtight and it makes sense and it's a way to, like, establish this universe that's that's that just makes sense and that there's no, like, confusion or or ambiguity with it or just um i don't know like I, I hate it when it's like overly complicated in that way and just doesn't work uh i'd rather yeah like what this film does i'd rather do what this film does and just like not really explain anything and just kind of accept it instead of just over complicating it because <laughs> i feel like that just kind of works better in their favor very much so because yeah and like even explaining it the way that i did like would go against the the entire structure of what this film has based itself around for its entirety yeah. and i will respect it for at least sticking to its guns and being goofy and nonsensical the entire time um so yeah um that's about all i have to say about this movie um did you have any fun facts at all that you found i found a couple in roger ebert's half star review that i wouldn't mind sharing <laughs> after you go <laughs> yeah i did uh i did come across a couple that were interesting so apparently the idea for the film came when director michael Gottlieb uh was walking down fifth avenue and thought he saw a mannequin move in the window of bergdorf goodman um and other yeah, and i guess uh this Mannequin has been described as a loose, rough remake of One Touch of Venus from 1948, which I haven't seen, but I'm kind of curious to check out. Yeah. I know um, there's also a plot thread in uh, Twilight Zone where mannequins come to life and everything. Obviously, it's kind of a lot different tone. It's not like wacky or anything. It's more like kind of unsettling and weird. And, uh, um, you know, I, I know that's uh, I definitely remember seeing that episode. So if you're a fan of Twilight Zone, check that out. I mean, not the same as Mannequin, the movie at all, but a uh, very <laughs> solid episode overall. I did find this pretty interesting. Uh, the film debuted at number three at the U.S. box office behind Platoon and Outrageous Fortune. Um, we already talked about. Uh, yeah, it grossed six million over a four day President's Day weekend. Uh, surpassing the other opener over the top starring Sylvester Stallone. So like, that's so wow, crazy. Wow, that's surprising. Yeah, like <laughs> this, this like top to Sylvester Stallone um, <laughs> weekend, which is so crazy. It's funny because um, I was going to say over the top is not really a great movie. Over the top is actually a good example of a sort of like wacky premise that I actually do think does work in its own right because the direction is competent. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a, it's the uh, Sylvester Stallone uh, deadbeat dad arm wrestling movie, if that gives you any sort of indication of what it's like. But I had fun with it when I watched it with my friends a couple of years ago, if that gives you anything. <laughs> so maybe try that if you're looking for something similar, but not. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Um, and this is the last uh, fun fact I'm going to bring up because we talked about the target market of everything, too. So some research did go into this and there was some logic and rationality behind this, which I thought was kind of interesting. So apparently the film was made based on the marketing uh, principles of noted Hollywood market researcher Joseph Fer uh, Farrell, who served as an executive producer. And the film was specifically designed to appeal to tar target demographics. And even though he wasn't a star, Andrew McCarthy was cast after tests of his films showed that he strongly appealed to girls. So, like, mm -hmm. I thought that was just kind of interesting because, like. I know there are some TV shows and movies that are kind of based on that premise on that premise. Like they'll do like a test screening and then based on the response, they'll cast that person. Like I know I never thought this would come up in a mannequin discussion, but I know like the similar thing <laughs> happened with blues clues back in the nineties. Like the character who played plays Steve, like it's so weird to me. Like he, he like looked completely different, had like his ears pierced, had like longer hair, but like he like really like the kids like really responded to him and stuff. So they ended up casting hmm. him and like, cutting his hair and making it, you know, putting him in the polo and all that stuff. And I always thought that was like so interesting and so weird. <laughs> but 
Yeah. I was going to say, naturally, I'm like really resistant to that sort of like uh, design by committee means of right. making entertainment. But I will <laughs> say there are instances where it can work out. You know what I mean? I can't think of yeah. any examples off the top of my head, but those are both uh, everything that you mentioned. It makes perfect sense. And I'm glad we got what we got because of that sort of test market demographic. So it's right. nice to know that that sort of method isn't completely useless and I'm not just cynical. <laughs> <laughs> no, for sure. I mean, honestly, it's just kind of interesting to think about because like outside of that, that Steve example with Blue's Clues. Like, I don't really have many other documented... I mean, I don't have any other cases off the top of my head that I can just rattle off, but no, it's it's interesting nonetheless. I mean, just, you know, gauging how well people uh, respond to or are engaged with a certain presence or certain actor or actress and then using that to decide, you know, the direction of a movie or the casting choices. I do find that really interesting. Definitely. And before we get into final thoughts, I'm re- I'm looking at Roger Ebert's half star review of this film, so it's nice to know that I agree with him somewhat this episode. <laughs> right. uh, I was going to say, if you were like me and were not really sold by the characterization that McCarthy and Cattrall brought to this, uh, Ebert reviews it, writes in his review from 1987. McCarthy and Cattrall are fairly helpless in the face of this material. For a look at what Cattrall can do in a good script, see Ticket to Heaven, the movie about indoctrination into a cult group. For McCarthy's good work, see Pretty in Pink. And I have not seen either of these films, even Mm. Pretty in Pink. It's one of the only sort of John Hughes era films that I, in the 80s, that I haven't seen yet. And it's on my... I, I download. <laughs> I got a subscription to Paramount Plus for a month because of the Super Bowl, and I'm knocking out a bunch of stuff that I haven't seen on the platform this month, and that was on my short list. <laughs> so maybe I'll watch it this month and see if McCarthy does have some good work in him. <laughs> okay, nice. Yeah, no, I'm curious to see more of uh, McCarthy's work as well. Yeah, or or Mashark Taylor, as you have shown yeah. in your letterbox stats this year, maybe he's got <laughs> some great work in him. In what was it? Double Double Toil and Trouble and The Secret of Nim Two. <laughs> I got my work cut out for me for sure. <laughs> God bless you. Anyway, so Eric, what are your final thoughts on Mannequin? Yeah, so while Mannequin is certainly goofy, I mean, I'd say it's anything but lifeless. Andrew McCarthy and Kim Cattrall have great chemistry in the roles as Jonathan Emmy. The soundtrack's great, and the film is nostalgic and serves as, a, as an interesting time capsule to the underappreciated art of preparing display windows. And yeah, for that, I'm actually giving Mannequin a 6 out of 10, but I will say that with an asterisk by it, like what I was mentioning before, it's it's recommendable to the right person. Even though that's a recommendable score as a whole, I would still pick and choose who I would recommend this film to. But if someone, you know, if it's someone who appreciates goofy, goofy and atmospheric romantic comedies that are just kind of mindless, cemented in the time period, then this would be your cup of tea, but... Yeah, it was one I I vibed with enough to, you know, not hate my experience. <laughs> you hear to hear first. Eric loves Mannequin. It's the hot it's the it's the best movie of 1987, better than The Princess Bride, better than Full Metal Jacket, better than Evil Dead 2. Like he can't get enough of this movie anyway. So, yeah. I will die so on that, that hill. <laughs> that's a resounding recommendation for Mannequin. Anyway, respect that. I respect all of that for sure. So, yeah, Mannequin, I went in with optimistic hopes that maybe it would be a surprise diamond in the rough or a so bad it's good sort of comedy that I could laugh at and point at and be like, oh, you know what? This was still fun. And unfortunately, I did not get anything out of it. I think all of the performances are pretty stiff, no pun intended. I didn't really vibe with any of the humor, the obnoxious tone, really any of the performances or concepts or metaphorical ideas that it's trying to push to the forefront of even in like sort of an 80s dated of the time comedy. Really nothing about this worked outside of maybe a couple of emotions that got loose, uh, some decent uh, some decent cinematography and a giggle here and there, but nothing I ever feel like I need to revisit or come back to. I would say avoid it, but I'm also deeply cynical, so maybe there's something in this for the <laughs> average moviegoer. Uh, but regardless, I'm going to give Mannequin a 3 out of 10. I think it's slightly better than Simply Irresistible that we talked about at the beginning of the episode, but... I still can't say that I got much, if anything, out of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, y- you would definitely not be the person I would recommend Mannequin, uh, Mannequin to to watch. I mean, in my defense, I guess too for the sequel, I ended up giving the sequel a three out of ten. Mannequin too. So okay, All if right. that gives you any indication, you'd probably God based on the on math there you'd probably give that half a star honestly it's it's not based good. on the based <laughs> on the math i would imagine i would commit harakiri after mannequin too <laughs> let alone giving it anything higher than the three yeah <laughs> that Lord, one i would not but- recommend 
<laughs> All right, cool. That's good to know. I'll avoid Mannequin 2, uh, Mannequin Boogaloo <laughs> in the future. So anyway, Eric, what do you have in store for us for the next episode? Yes. Yeah, so with the Oscars approaching on March 10th, I wanted to pick something in that vein. So I did some digging on the Oscar Best Picture winner list on Letterboxd and picked a film we both haven't seen yet. And I'm taking us all the way back to the beginning in this next episode because this film was the very first Best Picture winner, which was then called the quote unquote Academy Award for Outstanding Picture. And if you haven't figured it out yet, my pick is William Wellman's 1927 film Wings, which you can currently stream on Tubi. Okay, sounds cool. Yeah, never seen it. I can't even tell you what the earliest Best Picture winner I've seen. I'm looking it up (laughs) as I'm looking on Letterboxd and I will tell you (laughs) <laughs> um, the earliest best picture winner that I have seen is Casablanca. So really, I have not seen Ooh. that many super duper old uh, best picture winners. And it's about time I start knocking some of these out. I haven't even seen Gone with the Wind, surprisingly. like that. <laughs> it's one of those things where I, I started watching It Happened One Night, uh, one night, and I, <laughs> I fell asleep because I start movies very late and stupidly and very sleepy. So I would like to try that again at some point. But yeah, to answer your question, no, I have not seen Wings and I'm looking forward to trying it. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, no, I'm super stoked for it too because yeah, I'm, I'm trying to knock out some more of those Oscar Best Picture winners on that list. And I was like, you know what? I really am curious to see how much the Best Picture winners have evolved over time from the very first one because I'm really curious. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, for sure. I'm very excited. Also, I was going to say, um, we'll save this as a surprise for the next episode, but I'm also very mm-hmm. curious to see. You said that you had like a semi-related anniversary pick as well. So I'm excited to see what that is as well, as I'm sure I will find out in private after this episode is done. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> so if you don't want to be spoiled for William A. Wellman's 1927 film Wings, watch it before the next episode. We put new episodes out every two weeks and we'll be having a full spoiler discussion. And that is it. Thank you all so much for joining us. Make sure to subscribe to Films for the Void wherever you're streaming this episode. You can find us on Twitter at Films underscore Void. You can follow me, Landon, on Twitter at I Got to Fever Man, on Instagram at DuhFever, D-U-H Fever, and on Letterboxd at Landon to Fever. You can follow Eric on Twitter and Letterboxd at Eric with the Hair and on Instagram at Eric with the Beard. And remember, as always, if you want extra goodies, such as early episodes and the possibility of picking a main topic movie, head on over to patreon.com slash films underscore void to subscribe for just $3 a month. Eric, before we wrap up, do you have anything else you want to add? Yeah, I did some digging when I went to make this selection. And the only other film I've seen from William Wellman is The Public Enemy. So I'm definitely excited to give Wings a watch. But <laughs> I also found it funny, too, because literally my math, my last pick was Wings of Desire. And now it's just Wings. So it, it just kind of felt right, you know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I was going to say, yeah. There's it a theme going that on. worked out. Does that mean <laughs> yeah. I have to pick another mannequin movie for my next pick? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it either has to be called Man or just kin or something. it's got to be a shortened version of mannequin in some way yeah or, <laughs> fuck it maybe i'll maybe i'll just pick lars and the real girl if i haven't if i hadn't already <laughs> seen it but yeah well as always thank you so much for listening and we will see you in the next episode take care see ya